0: From your local Houston BMW Center studios, welcome to the Public Affairs Podcast, addressing local issues that affect our nation and shape our world. I'm your host, KG Smooth. And a few weeks ago, I was sharing with you, I was reading from the book, Meet Your Straw Man and Whatever You Want to Know. Now, this was about a month ago, and uh, I read the first two parts, and uh, this morning, I'm going to continue reading from the book, Meet Your Straw Man and whatever you want to know. You can go back to uh, those older episodes uh, to get the first two parts. And I'm going to pick it up here where I left off at bookkeeping. So here we go. The bookkeeping. This next part of the information may be a little difficult to understand. When any business is being run, the accounts are recorded as money coming in and money going out. For the bank, the money coming in is called a credit, and the money going out is called a debt. The objective is to have these two amounts always match each other balance for any customer. Not everything done in banking is immediately obvious to the average person, so it may be a little difficult to understand how everything works in this area. If you have an account with a bank and you deposit $200 to open the account, the bank enters that in its books as a credit. The credit on your account is $200 and the debt is zero, so the balance has a positive or credit Value of $200. If you were to withdraw $300, then the bank would record this as a debt of $300. When the credit balance on your account is $200, the balance on your account would be $100 in debt, that is, overdrawn by $100. If you were to deposit a further $100 and then close your account, the bank would not have any problem other than the fact that they would like to keep you on as a customer. As far as the accounting goes, your account is balanced and the bank is satisfied with the state of affairs. $300 has come in, $300 has gone out. The books balance, cased close. Now, if you were to apply for a loan, mortgage or otherwise, for $100,000 from the bank, they would give you an application form which is set in such a way that you have to fill in the strawman's name rather than your own separate boxes with one of them containing Mr. and they may even require you to fill the form in using block capital letters. You may think the capital letters are so that they can read you writing or perhaps to make it easier for it to be entered into a computer, but the name and those capital letters belong to the straw man and not to you. You have actually made an application on behalf of the straw man and not on behalf of yourself. You might wonder why they would do this. After all, what could they ever get from the straw man? Well... You might be surprised when the straw man is when the straw man was incorporated, they assigned a large monetary value to it, possibly one hundred million dollars. And they have been trading on the stock market on behalf of the straw man ever since. And you know how many years that has been. So very surprisingly, in their opinion, the little fellow is very rich And you have just authorized them to take the amount of your loan application from the straw man's account. So before the bank passes you any money, it has already gotten its money from the straw man account and entered it in its books as a $100,000 credit on your loan account. They then place $100,000 into your loan account as a debt. Interestingly, that loan account is now balanced and could easily be closed off as a completed deal. This is where the sneaky part comes in. To get the money out of your account, you have to write and sign a check for $100,000 on that account. What does the bank do with checks which which you sign? It assigns them to the account as an asset of the bank, and suddenly the bank is ahead by $100,000 because the check is in the name of the straw man who can supply the bank with almost any amount of money. But it doesn't end there. As the bank is confident that you know so little about what is going on that you will pay them anything up to $100,000 over the years against what you believe you owe them. If that happens, then they have made yet another $100,000 for the bank. To make things even better for them... They want you to pay them interest on the money which you don't actually owe them. Overall, they make a great deal of money when you borrow from them. So perhaps you can now see why banks make hundreds of millions in profit each year. If the loan were used to buy property, then the bank probably, then the bank probably insisted that you assign the title deed to them As collateral for the loan, as soon as the property deal closes, was completed. If you then fail to pay them, if you then fail to keep paying them, they are likely to attempt to foreclose on the loan and sell your property quickly for an even greater profit. And to add insult to injury, if the property sale did not exceed the amount of the loan plus the charges for selling it, then they are likely to claim that you owe them the difference. Perhaps you can now see why Jermone Daly told them to go take a running jump at themselves and why your request for the accounting for any loan made to you puts the bank in an impossible situation. If the bank then writes and tells you that the debt is fully discharged, they still have made a massive profit on the operation, and they also Hope that the vast majority of their customers will not catch on to the fact that they are paying far too much for their property or even that, or even that there is a straw man involved. Please don't, feel that you're, please don't feel that you are ripping off the banks if you don't pay them what they are asking you to pay. They have already recovered everything paid out before you started paying them for the second or third time. What it is, what what it is, a mortgage, the entire process is very much the same. The debt free sovereign website, freewebs.com slash debt free sovereign, gives a very clear description of this process in Canada. And the process is much the same everywhere else. They describe a typical property sale and mortgage this way. The buyer goes to Magic Bank in response to the bank's claim that it is in the business of lending money in accordance with its corporate character. The buyer went to the bank believing that Magic Bank had the assets, money, to lend. Magic Bank never tells its customers the truth that it does not have any money to lend nor that Magic Bank is not permitted to use their depositors' money to lend to its borrowers. Notwithstanding the fact that Magic Bank does not have any money to lend, Magic Bank makes the buyer-slash-borrower sign a mortgage loan application form, which is essentially a promissory note saying that the buyer-slash-borrower promises to pay Magic Bank for the money what money, which he is supposed to receive from Magic Bank, even before any value or consideration is received by the buyer slash borrower from Magic Bank. This promissory note is a value consideration, a receivable, and therefore an asset transferred from the buyer to the bank, which Magic Bank enters in its own asset account as a cash deposit. After making sure that the buyer has the ability to pay the required monthly payment, the buyer has credit, Magic Bank agrees to lend the buyer the money, cash, to pay the seller. Magic Bank has no money to lend, but it gave the buyer a promise to lend money by way of commitment, by way of a commitment letter, loan approval letter, loan authorization, or loan confirmation letter, etc. Signed by a bank official or loan slash mortgage officer employed by Magic Bank. Magic Bank's acceptance of the buyer's promissory note makes the bank liable to the buyer slash borrower for the full face value of the promissory note of the promissory note, which is the agreed purchase price of property, less any cash deposit or down payment money paid by the buyer directly to the seller. It is important to note at this point that all real estate transactions require that the property being sold must be conveyed by the seller to the buyer, free of all liens and encumbrances, which means that all liens, such as existing mortgages, judgments, etc., must be paid before the property can be mortgaged by the buyer as collateral to the mortgage loan, which is yet to be received by the buyers pursuant to the promise made by Magic Bank. How can the seller pay off his mortgage or obtain clear title if he has not yet received any money from the buyer? And how can the buyer mortgage a property that does not yet belong to him? This dilemma is solved using Magic Bank's magic bag of tricks. Magic Bank, in concert with the bank's lawyers or notary, causes all the liens and encumbrances in- to magically disappear by writing a Magic Bank check. Backed by the buyer's promissory note and agreement of purchase and sale deposited into the lawyer's trust account to pay the seller for the property at closing. In essence, using the buyer's promissory note as the cash to enable the agreement of purchase and sale. So, the buyer's promissory note made the convenience possible. Wait, so the buyer's promissory note made the conveyance possible. The bank, Magic Bank, caused the property to be conveyed from the seller to the buyer with title free and clear of all encumbrances and liens. The property now belongs to the buyer, which makes it possible for the buyer to mortgage the property to Magic Bank. The buyer actually paid for the property using his own promissory note. At this point, the seller has not yet received any money or cash, so Magic Bank and its magicians must perform more magic in order to satisfy the seller's requirements that he get paid or the whole deal is null and void. The seller does not even know that the property has been magically conveyed to the buyer's name in order for the seller to receive any money. The ensuing magic trick is accomplished this way. The buyer is made to sign another promissory note. The mortgage contract is attached to the promissory note, which makes the buyer liable to pay Magic Bank for the money or the loan, which the buyer has not yet or may never receive for up to 25 years or more, depending on the term of the mortgage contract. This note is linked to the collateral through the mortgage contract, and as such, it is valuable to Magic Bank. Magic Bank then goes to Federal Reserve Bank or to another bank to pledge the deal that they have just gotten from the buyer for credit. The Federal Reserve Bank then gives Magic Bank the credit. Remember, it is not Magic Bank's credit, it is the buyer's credit who promised to pay Magic Bank if and when the money is received by the buyer from Magic Bank payable for up to 25 years or more. Note, what happened above is basically a swap transaction, all banks do to monetize security. In this case, the second promissory note that is linked to the mortgage contract and signed by the buyer, is a mortgaged backed security. Magic Bank will then agree to pay the Federal Reserve Bank a certain percentage of interest over prime. Thus, the buyer's loan package goes to the Federal Reserve Bank, which credits Magic Bank with the full amount of credit, which is the total amount of the money Magic Bank is entitled to receive for 25 years, which is the amount of the principal plus all the entrance payments the buyer has promised to pay to Magic Bank for 25 years or more, which is usually three times the amount of the money promised by Magic Bank to the buyer. By Magic, Magic Bank just enriched itself and got paid in advance without using or risking its own money. Magic Bank's magicians and lawyers who hold the check that is backed by the buyer's original promissory note, then writes a check to the seller as payment for the property. In effect, the buyer paid the seller with his own money by virtue of the fact that it was the buyer's own money, the promissory note, that made the purchase and sell possible. Magic Bank just made a cool 300% profit without using or risking any capital of its own. Neither was there any depositors' money deducted from Magic Bank's assets account in this transaction. What really happened was pure deception. And if we, the people, tried to do this, we would end up in prison, being found guilty of fraud and criminal conversation. And uh, wait, we would be found guilty of fraud and criminal conversation, not to mention that the property would have been seized by the court. This is only a crime if we, the people, do it to each other, as it would be an indictable crime if we issued a check with no frauds. There would not be any deal, no purchase and sell agreement, because there is no valuable consideration. In order to decriminalize the transaction, we need Magic Bank and their cohorts to make the deal happen. It is really a conspiracy of sorts, but these persons, the banks, the lawyers, the land title offices, and even the courts, do not consider the transaction as fraudulent transaction because these transactions happen all the time. Such a contract is void ab entiendo, or void from the beginning, which means that the contract never took place in the first place. Moreover, in good faith and fair dealing requirement through full disclosure is non-existent, which further voids the contract. Magic Bank failed to disclose to the buyer that it will not be giving the buyer any valuable consideration and taking interest back as additional benefit to unjustly enrich the corporation. Magic Bank also failed to disclose how much profit they are going to make on the deal. Magic Bank led the buyer to believe that the money is going to the seller would would be coming from its own asset account. They lied because they knew, or ought to have known, that their own book or ledger would show that Magic Bank does not have money to lend and that their records will show that no such loan transaction ever took place. Their own book will show that there would be no debt from magic bank's assets accounts at all. And all that would be showed up to, and all that would be show up, hold on. And all that would show up are the two entries made by the buyer gave Magic Bank the first collateral or promissory note which enabled Magic Bank to cut a check which made it possible to convey the property from seller to the buyer free and clear of all liens or income braces and required by the agreement of purchase and sale entered into the writing between the buyer and the seller. What really happened was not Magic In reality, the buyer's promissory note was used by Magic Bank and its magicians, the lawyers, and the land title clerks to convey free title to the buyer from the seller. So, why do we need the mortgage contract at all? The other entry that would show up when we would audit Magic Bank's account is the other pledge of collateral, including the buyer's promissory note, which was conveyed unlawfully and without disclosure or permission from the buyer, into a mortgage back security, which was swapped or deposited by Magic Bank to the Federal Reserve Bank, for which another deposit was entered into Magic Bank's transaction account. I am going to pause right here, and we are going to come back, and I'm going to continue reading more of the book, Meet your straw man and whatever you want to know. You're listening to the Public Affairs Podcast. We'll be right back. From your local Houston BMW Center studios, welcome back to the Public Affairs Podcast addressing local issues that affect our nation and shape our world. I'm your host, KG Smooth, and I've been reading from the book, Meet Your Strawman and Whatever You Want to Know. So we're going to pick up and continue from where I left off at the last segment. And if you're just tuning in, uh, I started reading this book uh, at the beginning of uh, this month. And so you can go back to listen to me read Meet your straw man and whatever you want to know, so you can have it everything in full context. But uh, picking up from where I left off before we went to break. From the above, we can list all the criminal acts perpetuated by Magic Bank. One, the mortgage contract was void ab initio because the bank lied and never intended to lend a single cent of their own assets or depositors' money to the buyer. 2. A valid contract must have a lawful or valuable consideration. The contract failed for anticipated breach. Magic Bank never planned to give the buyer, borrower, any valuable consideration. 3. Magic Bank breached all of its fiduciary duties to the buyer and is therefore guilty of criminal breach of trust by failing in its good faith requirement. 4. Magic Bank concealed the fact from the buyer that it would be using the buyer's promissory notes first to clear all liens and encumbrances in order to convey the clear title to the buyer and then use the second promissory note to obtain more money from the Federal Reserve Bank. Or other institutions that buy and sell mortgage backed security. Magic Bank received up to three times the amount of money required to purchase the property and kept the proceeds to itself without telling the buyer. 5. Magic Bank violated its corporate charter by lending credit or nothing at all to the buyer and then charging interest on its own make-believe loan. Banks are only licensed to lend their own money, not other people's money. Magic Bank used a buyer's promissory note to clear the title, which essentially purchased the property from the seller. The transaction is an ultra vires transaction because Magic Bank has engaged in a contract outside of its lawful mandate. An ultra varies contract is void or voidable because it is non-existent in law. Number 6. Everyone involved is undertaking with Magic Bank, starting with the loan or mortgage officer, the lawyers, the land title office, and even the central bank are equally guilty by association by aiding and abetting Magic Bank in its commission of its crimes against the buyer and the people who would eventually have to absorb all of the loss through increased taxes, etc. In the final analysis, Magic Bank and the others who profited from the ultra Various transaction are all guilty of unjust enrichment and fraud for deceiving the buyer and the people and for acting in concert in this joint endeavor to deceive the buyer. Dealing with the police. Years ago, a policeman was your friend and defender. Things have changed now that, the pol- now that the police force have become commercial organizations dedicated to producing a profit by taking money from you in the form of speeding fines, parking fines, and any number of other charges it is stated on national tv recently that in the last 13 years 3000 additional offensive offenses have been invented as each individual police force is a commercial company in a way like mcdonald's restaurant in strategy it has no authority to enforce anything any more than mcdonald's has The men and women who work under the banner of their local police force have two separate roles. When they take up their occupation, they take an oath of office, pledging to uphold the law. The oath and nothing else gives them the authority to act to enforce common law. That is the few things which are listed near the start of the legal ease section above. It does not authorize them to do anything connected with so-called government statutes. So they have been trained to use legal ease to entrap uninformed members of the public. To be fair, it is highly likely that members of the police force are not aware of what they are doing and do not understand the difference between legal statutes, which are optional, and the lawful common law requirements which apply to everyone and are not optional. Please don't get me wrong. Most policemen and policewomen do a great job and assist members of the public often above and beyond the requirements of their job. Opposing bullying, intimidation, fraud, etc. and conforming in cases of bereavement or Oh, wait. um, And comforting in cases of bereavement or injury. Adamantly, the commercial companies who control the police forces are working hard to end this sort of positive behavior using ridiculous health and safety regulations as an excuse, even to the extent that the police officers are instructed to stand by and watch somebody drool and not attempt to save them. This is not the choice of the officer, but the instructions of the owners of the company. Because these thousands of invented offenses don't apply to anybody unless they agree to be bound by them, it becomes essential for a police officer to, possibly inadvertently, pursue a a member of the public to agree to subject himself to these unnecessary restrictions and agree to pay invented cash penalties to the local commercial company called the police force. The normal first attempt is established the normal first attempt to establish this sopranous dominance of the police officer is by him asking for your name. This is not an innocent question. It is essential that you are careful in what you say, as there are legal ease booby traps all over the place. One suitable reply is the law does not require me to provide that information, which is entirely correct and avoids pitfalls. Number one, and no matter how often the question is asked, the question, I mean, the answer is always the same. It is important not to argue with a police officer as that is another legal ease booby trap, which makes you subject to thousands of hateful regulations designed to part you from your money. So only answer questions ideally with a non-aggressive question and don't volunteer any information. If the officer says, you are exceeding the speed limit. You could say, "Was I?" As you don't argue, nor do you say that the common law does not require anyone to keep the speed limits, obey road signs, park only where directed, etc, even though that is perfectly true. Maxim? Arguments are for fools. As mentioned before. If the police officer asks, do you understand, your response should be, no, I do not stand under you in this matter. As before, the question is a legal ease trap that has nothing whatsoever to do with understanding anything which has been said. Under common law, an offense has only been committed if there is a victim somebody who has been injured or killed had possessions, damaged or stolen, or who has been defrauded. So if the police officer keeps pushing you to agree to pay his company money, then when, when you don't need to do it, then is a good question to ask. Might be, who is this in this victim? Wait a minute. Let me, let me start that over. (laughs) So, if the police officer keeps pushing you to agree to pay his company money when you don't need to, then a good question to ask might be, who is the victim? An alternative is to ask, what is the charge or am I free to go? If you stick to these things, then the police officer has nothing to work on as you have not agreed to be bound by statues You have not provided a full name and address for him to write on an invoice or fixed penalty notice, as they like to call it. And you have not entered into a controversy by arguing with him or into dishonor by refusing him point blank. There is one other thing, and that is, without being aggressive or offensive in any way, you must not do anything which he tells you to do, because if you do, then those charming legal ease people can see that you agree to stand under him and become subject to his legal, but not lawful, authority, and so become liable to those thousands of cunning plans called statutes, carefully crafted in order to rob you in a perfectly legal but not lawful way. One thing which any police officer needs to become aware of is the fact that they do not have any security provided by the police force which employs them. In any situation which does not involve common law, the police officer is on his own acting as an individual contractor and As much as a wide open to action against him under common law, if he is acting unlawfully or by civil court action, if his actions are warranted, if his actions warrant it. If there is failure to establish joinder, which is the human, which is where a human voluntarily agrees to represent the straw man and so becomes subject to statutes then the presumed authority of a police officer does not exist in any respect, and he is acting solely as an individual whose only authority is to enforce common law and nothing else. Registration Most people believe that when they buy a car that they have to register it with the commercial company known as the Department of Motor Vehicles. What very few people are aware of is the fact that the act of applying for registration confirms the transfers, confirms the transfers, the physical ownership of the vehicle from you to the purchaser who paid the money to the state. That is, if you have a vehicle anyway to a... Okay. That is, if you... (laughs) Let me get it together. That is you have given the vehicle away to a commercial company who has done nothing at all for you and which does not have your best interest at heart since it is unlawful to swindle anyone i would most i would be most interested to hear any reason why this registration should be deemed to be unlawful blatant and an obvious fraud for there has not been full disclosure of the silent and adhesive contract and adhesive contract terms. The change of ownership is shown by the fact that you, the previous owner, are now sent a document stating that the straw man is now the registered owner of the vehicle which you have just bought. You are left to pay maintaining the vehicle for which you do not own and which the actual owner will seize and sell the vehicle, which cost him nothing. If you, as an agent for the registered owner, do not keep paying on, do not keep on paying for the use of the vehicle. Seizing the vehicle would not be lawful if the vehicle did not belong to the company doing the season, the seizing The vehicle will be seized if the registration tax is not paid. That tax was originally introduced as a fraud contributed to by the vehicle drivers in order to build new roads and to maintain roads that exist. That was the reasonable idea, which means that all the roads in the country belong to the people who paid the money for them to be built and repaired. Local authorities say that they can't maintain roads properly as they do not have sufficient funds to do the work. The charge is more for vehicles of larger size on the excuse that they burn more fuel and so contribute more to global warming. The real purpose of the increase is to take more money from people who have no idea what's going on. There is even a proposal now that motorists be charged for every mile that they drive along the roads, which they pay for and own. That, of course, is not the only stream of income for vehicles. A major source of income is from the massive tax on fuel for vehicles, and it has been stated that an incredible 65% of the selling prices is the proportion of which is not needed for the location, uh, extraction, processing, and delivery. For the actual fuel. In passing, it can be noted that vehicles can be run on water, compressed air, energy direct from the environment, permanent magnets, and even on gravity. It will, without a doubt, be a shock to you that many of the inventors who have done this suddenly disappeared as soon as they started testing their prototypes far fetched. I know of five people who have been told to cease and desist or else. When you understand the billions and billions in profit that are made through selling oil products, selling oil products, actions like that become very understandable, especially since the people who do these things own the police forces and the courts and know that there will be no comeback no matter what they do. So, What about the driver's license? Under common law, humans have the right to travel freely, and that includes using a vehicle when traveling. The legalese people want to persuade you that you are no longer a traveler under common law, but instead you are a driver subject to their statutes and that they demand that the driver must have a driver's license, registration tax, car insurance, and anything else they can think up. If you wish to live in freedom and somebody asks to see your license, then the question is, why would I want one of those? A driver's license is only needed for a driver of a vehicle which is being used in commerce. It cannot be argued that transporting it can be argued it can be argued that transporting a straw man is a commercial undertaking. So it would be advisable to not have anything related to a straw man with you on the road. It is also important to not give your name, address, or supposed, date of birth, or to show any forms of ID as this places you in position of voluntary submission by A, obeying the command of another human being who is of equal standing to you. B. associating yourself with consequentially representing a straw man who is automatically subject to all statutes being itself a legal fiction joined to that fictitional world. So, if you are not carrying a passenger, who is paying for the journey and you are not stopping off and you are not stopping off on the journey to sell things and you are not transport- and you are not transporting a straw man, then you are not a driver with a passenger, but are instead a traveler with a guest travelers do not need driver's license. Hmm. And I'm going to stop it right there uh, because the, uh, the next part goes into uh, postal demands. So uh, once again, the book is meet your straw man and whatever you want to know, it's about five bucks on Amazon. Um, you can go back and listen to the previous episodes of me uh, reading this book. So you can get it in full context and, um, Thank you for listening. Please forgive me and my mess ups as I was reading this live in real time. Uh, So uh, thank you for my for my slip ups. And thank you for listening to the Public Affairs Podcast. On behalf of Uncle Funky Larry Jones, I'm KG Smooth. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday and we'll see you next week.